Thank you for joining us. Remember, you can watch our services live and view our archive at StevensCreekChurch.com, the Stevens Creek app, or on our Roku channel. And if our ministries have touched your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to mystory@stevenscreekchurch.com. We hope today's message encourages and inspires you. Enjoy the message. It is great to see you guys in what is the most exciting week in Augusta, Georgia. It's, it's a great time to be here. And whether you're here live or you're watching online from wherever you are in the world or at our Grovetown or South Campus, it's just great to see you. And we're wrapping up today a series called You Make Me Crazy, which is about relationships, because sometimes relationships can just make us feel crazy. And yet, it's the most worthwhile thing we can ever do in our entire life. And the, the story we're going to look at today has something to do with birth order. And so I've done this here before, but it's been a while. But since it ties in today, I'm going to do it right now. I want to know who, like me, is the firstborn in your family? Any other firstborns? Oh, yeah. Confident, confident hands go up. You guys are strong, confident people. A lot of world leaders are firstborns. Uh, but here's the thing. We're also messed up. We're messed up people. This is why relationships are complicated, by the way, is that all of us are kind of messed up. And we firstborns are messed up, but it's not your fault. It's, it's your parents' fault. They messed you up. And they didn't mean to. It's just that when you were born, they had no idea what they were doing, right? They didn't have a clue. They didn't have to read a book or take a test. They just had you, and they're like, well, let's, let's experiment on this one. Let's see what happens. And then... They maybe start having other kids, and then they really panic, and they think we've got to be hard on the first one to scare the other ones into behaving. So how many of you firstborns like me, you had more chores, more punishments, more rules, didn't you? Yes, of course you did. That's why we're tougher, but it also messed us up a little bit. How many of you are babies of the family? Yes. Look at me. I'm the baby. I love attention. Now, you guys are the most fun, but way more messed up than the firstborns. Now, again, though, it's not your fault. It's your parents' fault. Because what happened is when you came along, they were just so tired. They're exhausted. I am, so, we got four kids. I am so tired that I can barely discipline. Our seven-year-old, he already smokes and has a tattoo, guys. Pray for him. We're really worried about him. No, he doesn't really. But he does tend to get away with more. Because the babies, it's like parents are exhausted. And then they, you feel guilty for how hard you were on the first one. So by the time the baby comes, you're like, let's try the other extreme. Let's try no rules with this one, no bedtime. And, you know, of course, it, it, it messes you guys up later in life. How many of you are middle children? Yeah, you're excited because no one's ever called on you before. It's like, <laughs> what? I've never been called on. Someone noticed me. So middle children, God love you. You know, your parents, they loved you. They just didn't know you were there. Like, they... <laughs> They were punishing the first one and coddling the baby. They might have had some kids in the middle. They're not even sure. You know, like, really, your birth order has nothing to do with why we're all messed up. But the truth is, every family's imperfect. Every one of us has some baggage. Every one of us has done some things we regret and been wounded by others. And, and no family is perfect. And even the families in the Bible, these, these heroes of the faith we revere, when when God gives us their story in scripture, we see that all these families are imperfect too. And there's so much we can learn from not only what they did right, but also what they did wrong so that we can prevent creating that kind of pain and baggage in our own families. But it also gives us hope when we do blow it, when we do make mistakes that God still uses and works through imperfect people and imperfect families. And so today we're gonna talk about how to break free from maybe some pain that you've carried with you from the past. Pain from 
decisions you've made or maybe the deeper pain of, of things that have been done to you? How do we break free from that? And also, how do we prevent causing future pain in our families and with the ones that we love the most? And as we frame that discussion, we're gonna do it through the lens of looking at one famous story from scripture, a story of two brothers in the Bible named Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau are perhaps the two most famous brothers in the Bible because so much of the history of the Bible, the theology of the Bible gets pinned on, on what was happening in their story. And theologians for years have used their story to argue about big things like the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man and, and how nations are born since the nation of Israel went on through Jacob's line. So much is going on in this story. All of it's worth exploring. But what we're gonna focus on today is really just the relational part of their story, just the family part. Yeah, I believe that the Bible, for all the many things it is, it's God's living, breathing word. It's our, it's our path to salvation. It reveals who God is. All of these things, part of what the Bible is, is an instruction manual for relationships because relationships are the most important part of life. When Jesus was asked, Lord, what's the most important thing in the Bible? He said, the most important thing, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love God, love people. It's all about relationships. And yet relationships are hard and they're messy because people are messy and we're messy, but it's worth the effort. It's worth the effort. And how, how do we do it? How do we do it right? Even when there's baggage in that relationship, even when there's been brokenness, that's what we're gonna look at in Jacob and Esau's story. So before we dive into their story, one kind of nerdy thing that I do sometimes when I'm reading the Bible to remind me that these are real people, real historical figures, is I think to myself, if I'm a Hollywood director, and I'm casting the role of this person, who do I cast? Who captures their personality? So in just a second, I'm gonna share my casting choices for Jacob and Esau. I feel really good about him. This would make a good movie. But first I'll tell you a bit about him. So Esau, the Bible tells us, he was this big, burly, muscular, hairy, testosterone-fueled guy. I picture him waking up at 4 a.m. to do CrossFit, then eating some raw eggs, and then going out and like hunting and you know, ultimate, like, manly man. Now, Jacob is the uh, kind of the other extreme. Uh, he's more of an indoor guy. Like, if the internet was around back then, he would have probably been online, like, all day. And he also, Jacob did some sketchy stuff. He was probably, in part of that time, running a shady internet business from his mom's basement. That's just kind of what we get from these two guys. Now, God used both of them. God used Jacob in a really remarkable way, even though we're going to see Jacob had a lot of character flaws. Um, but he was also really sharp and quick-witted and, and God even you know, used that. So my casting choices, this might help you visualize the stories and move forward. So for Jacob, I'm casting Jason Bateman. For Esau, I'm going Jason Momoa, Aquaman. So from now on, you see these guys in a show, in a movie, you're gonna be like, it's Jacob and Esau. And by the way, Steven Spielberg, if you're watching, you're Jewish. These guys, you know, the, the Jacob and Esau were Jewish. It's a great Israel origin story. You should make this movie with these actors. It would go really well. That's my Hollywood advice. So we're gonna dive into the story now that you can visualize. As we do though, we're gonna just remind you of the one point that's held this whole series together. And I've already kind of alluded to it. Relationships take hard work, but it's the most important work you'll ever do. It's worth the effort. All right, let's dive into these guys' story. Genesis chapter 25 will be in their story in the book of Genesis, which is the very first book of the Bible, beginning in verse 27 of chapter 25. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter 
He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac, that's their dad, loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah, that's their mom, loved Jacob. So we can see right here from the start, there's some dysfunction happening in this family. There's favoritism. There's uh, competition. There's a lot of unhealthy competition that Jacob and Esau had right from the beginning. I told you right at the start that birth order plays into this story. These guys were born in a time and in a place and in a very unique culture where birth order meant everything. If you were the firstborn son, it carried with it an enormous amount of responsibility, inheritance. It carried a, a, a position within the community and the family, a, a certain unique blessing. Um, there was a lot to it. Now in our time, like we're much more equitable and wh where you are in the birth order doesn't and really shouldn't matter. But in this very specific time and culture, it mattered a lot. And these guys were always jockeying for position within this family. Like, what's my place? Am I gonna get my share of respect, my share of this, my share of mommy and daddy's love? And we see that Isaac and Rebecca, their parents, whether they meant to or not, they played favorites, which fed into this competition. Jacob felt like I can never earn dad's love because I'm not good, I'm not athletic like Esau. And that's what's important to my dad and I don't measure up. And Esau looks at his mom and he's like, and I'm not into, you know, sitting with mom and, and watching the Food Network like Jacob is and he likes her, she likes him more and I can't measure up. And so like, there's, there's just this weird dynamic that's a little bit broken and that feeds into what's gonna happen next. Right, so the first principle here is favoritism and unhealthy competition can deeply wound a family. And if you grew up in a family where you felt like love was conditional where you felt like mom or dad's approval was based on the report card you brought home or your batting average in Little League or, or any other factor, it can create some very deep, deep wounds. And it can make you believe that love itself is something that can be easily lost and has to be constantly won through performance. And to win it, you have to beat out other people because there's only so much love to go around. And so I have to be better than my sister. I have to be better than my brother. I have to be better than this guy and that guy. And that really is the opposite of love. And yet so many of us grew up in, in, in brokenness like that. So we've got to watch out for the unintended messages we're sending. I don't think Isaac and Rebecca probably knew they were sending these messages of favoritism. They probably never clearly said, you know what, you're my favorite. I lo love you way more than your twin brother. I wish he was more like you. They probably didn't say it that clearly, but the unintended messages they were sending through their words, their actions, their expressions, their tone, their time, was sending that clear message to those children that grew up believing, dad doesn't really love me, mom doesn't really love me. And guys, we've gotta be so careful in our relationships, in our families, and especially with our children of the unintended messages that we send because we're sending them all the time. And the unintended messages we send are the most important and the most dangerous ones of all because we're always saying something. Even if we're choosing to speak no words, that silence is communicating something. I was reminded about unintended messages kind of in a, in a, in a funny way, I suppose, uh, and the very first missions trip I ever went on with this church, years and years ago, a group from this church went to this tiny rural village in Honduras where our church had built a connection and we went to serve this community. And this community was some of the most loving people I'd ever been around, but they had poverty like I'd never experienced and probably none of us have ever seen in the United States. I mean, no running water. No, uh, I don't believe they even had electricity. 
it was this rural village way out and they didn't have things that we take for granted and yet they had faith and love and it was really, we came to serve them but I ended up being inspired by them. I think they helped me much more than, than we did for them. But on this trip, uh, we had a young man from Honduras who was our guide. His name was Rene. He was like college-aged, really sharp young man. And his English was pretty good. And so he was there primarily as a translator because most of us at the time spoke little to no Spanish. And, and Rene was there to kind of just build the bridge and make sure we could communicate. And he was a great, great kid, a great young man. Loved Jesus, loved us. He was great at, at what he was doing. But on the last day of this trip, Rene was sending an unintended message. All right, here's what happened. So he got up and he was leading us in a final prayer and was trying to lead us in this really meaningful last moments as a team. And as he got up there to talk and to lead this prayer, and he was so excited and so sincere, he was wearing a t-shirt with really big letters on it. And the big letters on his t-shirt said, I'm looking for a good one night stand. (laughs) So true story. So me and another guy on the team went up to him like real quickly and we're like, Renee, man, hey, you know, what a great week it's been. You're just amazing. I said, tell us about your shirt. He's like, yeah, I, I got this on sale. I thought it was so colorful. And I'm like, yeah, it's colorful. It's definitely catches the eye. It does. Um, do you know what, it's, what it, that means? He said, well, I know what each of the words mean. And I know that none of those are bad words. And I said, you're exactly right. None of those by themselves are bad at all. In fact, they're all good words in other contexts. Like, that, you know, looking, that's a fine word. You know, stand, that's a good one. All of these words are fine. They're good words to know. I said, however, um, in, in our culture, as a native speaker of the language, that those words in that order creates a phrase that who's, which m- the meaning of that phrase, I don't think is what you're trying to communicate. And we explained to him as best we could the meaning of that phrase and his eyes got so big and he goes, oh my goodness, I had no idea. And he was horrified guys, because this was not a new shirt. He had been wearing this shirt a long time in a lot of different places and had gotten a lot of strange looks. He's just smiling, waving to people like the friendliest guy. And they're thinking he's friendly all right, you know, looking at that message. And so he, had, he was thinking back, I've been sending this message having no idea I was sending it over and over and over again. And guys, the messages we send, the unintended messages we send, it might not be as clear as a big phrase on a t-shirt, but it, it can be just as clear to the, the people who, who see what we're doing, who are watching us, especially again, kids. They notice everything and they're making assumptions about things that we don't mean, we don't mean a certain way, but they'll, they'll take it a certain way. And we, we just have to be so so very careful. So the stage is set now. Jacob and Esau, growing up in competition, growing up completely different from each other, growing up feeling like they have to earn mom and dad's approval, growing up trying to fight for their place in the family, growing up with this kind of whole birth order significance. And it comes to this this point that's going to be a life-changing moment for both of them. So Esau, who's you know, kind of lives in the moment. And, you know, one of his flaws is he doesn't think ahead the way that he should. And Jacob, who's manipulative, those two character flaws are going to come head to head in a moment. So Esau's been out hunting, the Bible says. Comes back, hadn't caught anything. He's starving. And Jacob is cooking food and it smells amazing. Amazing. And he asks for some food. And Jacob sees an opportunity to manipulate. He's going to manipulate his brother's hunger. And he's like, all right, I'll give you some food 
but you got to give me your birthright. And the, the, the trap is set. Pick up the story, verse 31 of Genesis 25. Jacob said, first you must swear to me that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother. Jacob, his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. So both these guys were wrong, right? They were both wrong. Jacob was wrong by taking by coercion and manipulation something that wasn't his to take. Esau was wrong by forfeiting something that wasn't his to forfeit, by letting a temporary appetite become more important than a lifelong legacy. And maybe we wouldn't trade it for a cup of stew when we're hungry, but over and over again, we've seen people in life, and maybe we've been guilty of this too, where we allow a temporary appetite to lead us into a moment of sin or a moment of compromise that creates lifelong regret. And that's the principle here. A momentary decision can have lifelong consequences. Now, thankfully, because of the blood of Jesus, we're set free from the guilt and the shame that come with the the worst choices we'll ever make. Jesus paid the price for it. And we're set free. Your identity is no longer in your worst moments. And thank God for that. However, just because of how God wired up the world, certain things that we do, just they carry significance. And sometimes become part of our story for our whole story. In fact, some of us are even carrying wounds that we had nothing to do with. It was somebody else's momentary poor choice. You know, mom and dad did that or walked out or they did that thing or this person did it and my spouse left or whatever. And their decision in a moment can create a lifelong pain in us. Now, thankfully, Jesus wants to heal that pain, but we have to be so careful and let this be a sober reminder that what we do in a moment can carry such weight. So don't let your appetites, don't let your, those moments of temptation cause you to compromise because those moments of compromise can cause so much pain to yourself and to others. So you fast forward now and the stage has been set for a moment of manipulation because the first part of Jacob's plan was to get Esau to relinquish that right of the firstborn, that blessing. But the second and trickier part was he now had to trick his father, Isaac, and actually passing that blessing on to him. Because you see, when the father would pass the blessing of the firstborn onto the firstborn, he'd place his hand on him and he would speak this blessing in a, wor- in a way that was binding, legally and spiritually binding, the way that they understood it at the time. And so he's got to trick his dad. Instead of respecting his father, he's got to trick his dad. And to show you just how broken the family dynamic has been, his mom, Rebecca, is going to help him pull off this scam. So he and his mom get together and she's like, here's what we're gonna do so that you get the blessing and you get this place of honor and you get the inheritance. We're gonna trick your dad. Now, Esau is really hairy. So we're we're gonna put animal skins on you. Your dad is mostly blind. You get the impression that he's got like early onset dementia and they're taking advantage of this leader of their family that they should have been protecting and respecting. And so he dresses like Esau. He puts on Esau's clothes. So he smells like Esau. He tries to disguise his voice. He walks in, he says, dad, it's me. And Isaac is straining to see his son, but he can't hardly see. He said, but you sound like Jacob. And he goes, no, dad, it's me, Esau. It's me, look, feel, feel the hair on my arms, like smell my clothes, it's me. And Isaac, his eyesight's going, he smells, and he smells of his son Esau. It smells like the outdoors because he'd taken Esau's clothing. And he goes, oh, I guess it's you, Esau. Well, now is the time. And he places his hands on Jacob's head and he passes that sacred blessing, the right of the firstborn onto him and all of the inheritance and all of the privilege that comes with that. Now, once this is done, 
Jacob knows that he's done something that could cause Esau to try to kill him. Because, you know, he'd stolen from his brother and Esau was a, was a hothead anyway. And so Jacob does what he was going to be a, a flaw most of his life. He ran from things instead of facing them. He ran and he hid. He, his mom helped him go connect with relatives, you know, far away. And Jacob went to try to find a life there. And over the years to come, God did a work in Jacob and worked through Jacob's tendency to manipulate and his tendency to cheat and his tendency to take shortcuts. And, and God worked through all that to finally slowly bring some maturity to Jacob's heart. But in this moment, right after that Jacob had, had stolen from his brother and tricked his father, Esau goes in to get the blessing. And Isaac, the father, realizes what had happened. And it's a moment of just heartbreak. He's like, your brother tricked me and I can't believe this happened. And Jacob is weeping, or Esau is weeping. Father, don't you say I'll have a blessing for me? And Jacob had taken it. And Esau is heartbroken. And in this moment of the story, I think people just read through this part of the story too quickly and think, well, that just set Esau's fate. And there's nothing that could be done after that. But there's something that Isaac says to his son Esau, which I think is one of the most powerful lines, not only from this story, but one of the most powerful lines, perhaps, in Scripture. Talking to Esau, r- recognizing that, yes, what has happened to you hurt, and it's going to redefine your life, but it doesn't define you, and you can break free from this. Listen to these words. Isaac spoke to his son Esau in this heartbreaking moment. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. It's, it's like the tables have been turned here. But... When you decide to break free, you will shake his yoke from your neck. This is, doesn't have to be a life sentence, he saw. When you decide to break free, you can break free. You can choose a different path. You don't have to let this define you. You don't have to let bitterness take root in your heart. You decide that you can break free. Here's a principle. Past wounds only have as much power as we choose to give them in the present. And as soon as I say that, and I totally believe that is true, but I also want to give this little side note. I don't in any way want to undermine the very deep and very real pain and trauma that many of us have experienced. And when you've experienced ongoing abuse or trauma at the hands of someone who should have been protecting you, I know it takes a lot more than just snapping your fingers and saying, I'm choosing to be free from that and pretending like it never happened because those wounds are so deep. And some wounds are so deep that it takes, it takes time. It takes counseling. It takes leaning on Jesus day after day after day as healing starts to flow into those very, very deep wounds. But for all of us, what I believe is that we give way too much power to the wounds from the past. And no matter what you've been through, no matter what you've done, the grace and love of Jesus Christ is more powerful than your darkest moment and your deepest pain. And because of that, we can live in freedom. Because of that, even while we're limping, even while we're working through the healing process, We can live in freedom. But this is how a lot of us choose to live instead. I'm going to show you a picture. It's an elephant being held by a rope. And if you go to parts of the world where elephants have been trained and domesticated, that's how they're held, a rope. An elephant that's strong enough to run through a brick wall. A full-grown elephant can run through a brick wall. But a rope attached to a wooden stake will hold him in place. Does he not know how strong he is? Does he not know that if he tugged on that rope, he would be free? Well, this is how they train an elephant to get to that point. When an elephant is a baby, the trainers will put not a rope, but a chain on his leg. 
And that elephant will fight and fight and fight against that chain until his leg is bloody, and then he'll fight and fight and fight some more. But eventually, that baby elephant will stop fighting. And every time that a chain is put on it, it won't fight. It'll just stand there. And so after a while, they switch the chain out for a rope. But in its mind, it's the same thing. It's still a chain. Over time, that baby elephant grows into a behemoth, most powerful of all land animals on earth. But in its mind, it's still a baby being held by a chain. It has no idea the strength that it actually possesses. And so many human beings live like this. When you were young, something happened to you that made you feel powerless and you tried to fight against it and you feel like I can't break free. This is a chain I can't escape. And so you accept that this is who I am. This is what I am. And maybe that chain for you is is an addiction that you've tried to break free and haven't been able to. Maybe that chain for you is words spoken over you by people that you you trusted, that, that you have allowed to sink into your heart and soul and define you. And you think I'll never break free from that. That's just who I am. Maybe your chain is regret over something you've done that you can't undo. And you think this is who I am and this is always gonna hold me back. And God is saying, you can break free from that. You're more powerful than you think because of the power of Jesus working in you to bring healing and grace. You don't have to stay chained. And in fact, most of the time, it's not a chain anymore. It's just a little rope. You have the power. When you choose to break free, you can break free. You really can. That's a message that God wants us to have. Whatever it is that's holding you back. And all of us have those things that tempt to hold us back. All of us have those dark places, those those, those habits, those mindsets, those beliefs, those pain points. And Jesus is saying, trust that to me. Trust it to me. I see what you're going through. I, I'm, I'm there with you in this. And I'm just saying, trust that to me and experience the freedom that I wanna give you. So I want you to fast forward. Jacob and Esau, many years later, you got middle-aged Jason Bateman and Jason Momoa that haven't seen each other in years and years and maybe thought they would never see each other. Because Jacob... Again, one of his character flaws is he hides, he hides from things instead of facing them. But God had ordered it in a way where he couldn't hide from this anymore and he was gonna have to face his brother. He had dreaded this moment all of his life. You get the picture that for years and years in a foreign land, Jacob raising his family and, and, and growing and just living his life in the back of his mind, he had this constant fear because he knew what he'd done. He knew he betrayed his brother and he had never had any peace because of it. He didn't know what his brother was up to. This was at a time when you couldn't Google people. You couldn't get on Facebook and look up, you know, stalk them and see what their pictures are like. He had no idea his brother was going on. But it came to a place where now he knows his brother is alive and he's going to have to pass through this land where his, where his brother is and there's no way around it. He's going to have a moment of confrontation. And he prays about it and he agonizes about it. And he looks at all of his possessions that he'd accumulated, all of his livestock and all of his stuff, and he's like, I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna offer to give it all to him. I mean, I stole a lot of this from him anyway. And it, what's it, if I die, what's it worth? I'm just gonna give it, give it all to him. And the stage is set. But what Jacob didn't know is that at some point along the way, and we don't exactly know when or how it happened, but we know it did happen. At some point along the way, Esau had taken his dad's advice and chosen to break free and chosen to release his brother because forgiveness has nothing to do with whether or not that person apologizes to you. If you're waiting for them to apologize, you're still giving them all the control in the situation and allowing them to manipulate and to hurt 
when Jesus says, you can, you can let that go. Even if that person that hurt you is dead and gone, you're never gonna hear the apology. You can let it go. It doesn't mean by letting it go that it didn't matter. It doesn't mean the pain wasn't real. It doesn't even mean that they're off the hook. What it means is, Jesus, I'm trusting this to you because it's too heavy for me to carry. And if I keep carrying it, my heart's gonna grow bitter. My heart's gonna grow cold. And I'm gonna inevitably start hurting the people around me who love me the most because I'm gonna punish them for wounds that were caused to me by somebody else. And that's how the cycle continues until we choose to break the cycle and we choose to break the chain and we say no more. You know, my parents were this way, their parents were this way. I'm choosing to be different for the sake of my kids, for the sake of my grandkids. The cycle stops with me. And we all have the power to do that. We all have the power to break free and choose a new way. And at some point along the way, Esau must have done that. Because what we see in this moment of confrontation in Jacob's terror that my brother's gonna kill me is there's no rage left in Esau. There's no bitterness left. He had moved on with his life. He had embraced that freedom and said, I'm not gonna be controlled by this one, one act of betrayal that I experienced. That doesn't define me. Yeah, it's frustrated me. It was a setback, but I learned from it and I move on. And in moving on, Esau, even though a lot of his property through the inheritance was, was taken, had actually acquired a lot more wealth than his brother Jacob had. He had all kinds of flocks and all kinds of lands and he, he was building a nation of his own. And not through bitterness or anger or rage, he, he seemed to be in a pretty healthy place. Let's pick up the story. Chapter 33, verses three and four, that Jacob went on ahead. He finally had to confront his brother. As he approached his brother, Jacob bowed down to the ground seven times before him. And then Esau, ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they both wept. Guys, that, that is a, a moment, a moment of reconciliation. It reminds me of the moment that the prodigal son, the story that Jesus told of the son who'd betrayed his family and went off and tried to do his own thing. And then he, he came back home in shame, not knowing if he'd be accepted. And his father runs out to meet him, wraps him up in a hug, kisses him, he says, welcome home, welcome home. Because at the end, guys, that moment of reconciliation is so much more powerful than holding on to regret and holding on to bitterness and holding on to anger. But we've got to get to a place where we're like, Lord, I'm trusting all that to you. And for the things that I've done to wrong somebody, help me take responsibility for the wounds that I've caused, whether they were intentional or unintentionally caused to say, I'm so sorry, I was wrong. I know that I hurt you and I, that was not my intent, but I know that I did and I make no excuse. And I just want you to know that I'm sorry. And if you'll give me the opportunity, I wanna do whatever in my power I can do to rebuild your trust and to make that right. And for those of us who've been wronged, even if we never hear those words, to say, God, I'm choosing to trust you by releasing this into your hands. I'm not trusting them by forgiving them. Forgiveness and trust are two different things. What I'm doing is I'm trusting you, Lord, and giving this pain to you and asking you to deal with it. You deal with their heart if they need to be dealt with, but also deal with mine. Don't let bitterness take root. Help me to live free, Jesus, because you want me to live free. And he does. Jesus wants you to live free, so don't settle for anything less than that. You know, Esau, we focus on, on, on Jacob, just Jacob, God chose through Jacob's line to establish the nation of Israel. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Jacob's sons became the the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel and the nation was really born through this broken family, this imperfect family. 
And then ultimately through that same broken line, Jesus, uh, Jesus our, our Lord and Savior, God chose to bring Jesus, our King, into that same family. And it's just a reminder that, that Jesus still shows up in imperfect families and God still has great plans for us no matter what your story's been up to this point. But Esau, he did it right too. Founded a nation of his own. Esau's other name was Edom. It was kind of a nickname. Um, and the Edomites became became a powerful nation inhabiting what is now modern day Jordan, which is a country in the Near East that borders Israel. In fact, the capital city of the Edomites, uh, the city of Petra is still one of these ancient wonders of the world because the entrance to their city, these descendants of Esau, they carved the entrance of their city into the side of a mountain. It's the coolest city entrance maybe you'll ever see. And it's thousands of years old and you can still go see it. Here is the entrance to the city of Petra in modern day Jordan. It was used as a backdrop in an Indiana Jones movie. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade? It's where the uh, Holy Grail was kept. Remember they go in and of course that part was a movie set, but this part's for real. Like that is on the side of a mountain. And that took some work. So Esau's descendants were, were busy and there was good that they did. However, um, sadly, the Israelites and the Edomites were at war with each other most of the time. For hundreds of years because the descendants of Jacob and Esau, like a lot of us do, we forget these moments of reconciliation and peace. And our human nature, apart from the nature that God wants to create in us, will revert back to the dysfunction much faster than it reverts to the health. All of us are prone to reverting back to the brokenness, even after we've experienced that goodness. And so there was this great moment of reconciliation and healing and forgiveness and brotherhood and unity and all of it. But then Generation by generation, people lost sight of that moment. And before long, they just became two nations at war with each other. And so there are lessons to be learned, lessons to be learned there as well. But I think we've got to focus on the reconciliation part. The Bible tells us that God has reconciled us to himself and that he has called us to the ministry of reconciliation, meaning we've got to be in the business as Christians. Our primary business is healing wounded relationships. That's it our wounded relationship with God by putting our faith in Christ, helping other people restore their relationship with God by finding healing through Christ, and then doing the messy but important work of rebuilding broken relationships here on earth, within families, within communities, like doing the work, not just making it look good on the surface where we hate each other behind the scenes, but we smile at each other in public. No, like really doing the work where we learn to love each other and serve each other and forgive each other. That's what we're called to do. So here's the principle. You don't have to live in fear or regret or bitterness. Jesus invites you to live in freedom. Don't settle for anything less. It's for freedom, the Bible says, that Christ has set you free. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Jesus doesn't want you to be shackled or imprisoned by anything. He wants you to live in freedom. And a lot of the chains we wear, it comes to a certain point, and they're, they're self-inflicted. We're, we're an elephant tied with a rope. We can snap it any time that we want. One last story, and we'll wrap up. Like one of my one of my favorite movies. More movie references today than usual, but just how it goes sometimes. But one of my favorite movies is uh, the Shawshank Redemption. Here's a, a movie poster of it. If you haven't seen it, it's just because you don't want to see it. It's literally on TV, 24 hours a day, somewhere. If you go right now, turn on cable. Some channel has this movie on. It's a it's a great movie. In a nutshell, it's about the lead guy, the protagonist, his name's Andy. He gets sent to prison for a crime he didn't commit. And over the 20 years he's there, he experiences both 
the depth of real friendship like he'd never experienced, but also horrific abuses and injustices like he'd never experienced. He experienced both. And all the while, what you don't know until the end is that he is slowly, methodically tunneling his way out. He's got this tiny little hammer and behind a huge poster in his room, every night he's chipping away at that concrete wall little by little by little until after nearly 20 years, he's carved a tunnel big enough for him to crawl through and he, he, he escapes. And at the end, all the injustice, all that's been done in the darkness comes to light. You know, justice is done. Him and his buddy end up on the beach like they'd always dreamed. And it's a, it's a great ending. Well, I'm driving through Northern Ohio with uh, my wife, Ashley, a couple weeks ago because we're speaking at a church up there. And by the way, guys, you have no idea how good you've got it here in Georgia. We've got it so good. It is cold in Northern Ohio. Like, they don't make clothing here that is suitable for up there. I was cold the whole time, like frigid. So we've got it made on a side note, but we're driving down these roads and I see this big billboard and it's got this big old prison on it. It says, experience Shawshank. And I'm like, we're going, right? You, we're going. So Ashley was a good sport. So we go to the prison where they filmed this movie. It was a real prison for a hundred years and then they decommissioned it and they shot the movie and they were gonna tear it down. But the movie became so popular, they've kept it open as a museum um, for the, the last generation at this point. And so we go in there and I, I brought a picture. We, so this is us at Shawshank Prison. And it's, it's such a, when I look at it, it's so bizarre that I'd be smiling <laughs> in a place that is, looks creepy and haunted, first of all. But more than that, like a place that was designed to take away freedom, a place that in this place just over the many, many years that it existed, like so much pain and heartache and so much pain was there. So how can I smile there? And the reason I can smile there is because I know this place that was designed to take away freedom has no power over me. It has no power over me. I can leave anytime that I want. And friends, right now, a lot of you might be in a real prison in terms of an addiction or a relationship crisis or a trauma or whatever it is, but it has so much less power over than you, than you realize. God always provides a way out. Now, just for full transparency, sometimes that way out looks more like Andy Dufresne's way out, where you've got to chip away at it little by little, year after year, until, until that tunnel opens up. And in the meantime, you've got to trust God where you are to do a work in you while you're working toward your freedom. But more often than not, we're standing in a prison that we can leave whenever we want. We're, we're being held by a rope that we can snap whenever we want. When you choose to break free and trust God with it, freedom starts to flow. And so my hope for all of us today, my hope for those watching online and our campuses and wherever you are and for those here in this room is that today's the day that we just, we just commit. And even as this sermon's going on, you, you know what that chain is in your life. We all have it, right? What is that for you? Trust that to Jesus today and say, Lord, I'm giving that to you. Give me the strength to break free. Show me the path to break free. And he will come alongside you and he will lead you to freedom. He always does. Let's stand together as we prepare to close. I just wanna pray a prayer of blessing over you. And thank you so much uh, for being here. I hope this is a great week for you. For those who are traveling, I hope it's a safe week for you. Thanks for being here through this ser series. Uh, let's, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the freedom, Jesus, that you make possible for all of us. 
I thank you for your goodness and grace. For anyone here who doesn't yet know you, Lord, they haven't experienced that freedom that comes by putting their faith in you. Let today be the day they say, Jesus, save me. Forgive me of the way that I've lived. Make me in the person I was meant to be and help me to experience the grace and freedom only you can bring. And for all of us, God, whatever we've allowed to imprison us, whatever mindset, whatever regret, whatever habit, whatever thought process, God, we commit that to your hands and we ask you to give us the strength to break free because you called us to live in freedom. Help us reconcile relationships that have been wounded. As far as it depends on us, Lord, let us live at peace with everyone. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, before you leave, don't forget, be here next Sunday if you're in town for Palm Sunday. That's also the kickoff to Love Week, which is the week where we celebrate everything of Holy Week leading up to Easter and we serve our community, showing them the love in Jesus in practical ways. There's information about all of that out here in the atrium and also at the church website. Check it all out. God bless, guys. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you would like to help support the ministries of Stevens Creek Church, please go to stevenscreekchurch.com and click the Give button. See you next time.